Good evening, this is Rob McClure along with Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Three bills signed into law today by Governor Evers aim to address overdose deaths from opioids, meth and fentanyl. One bill reverses state law to clarify that fentanyl testing strips are not considered drug paraphernalia. Another creates tiers of felonies for manufacturing, distributing, or possessing fentanyl. And yet a third requires state agencies to create a database to track meth and opioid use. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that in 2020, more than 93,000 people nationwide died from overdose deaths, the highest number of overdose deaths in one year. During the same year, at least 1,200 people in Wisconsin died from opioid overdoses alone. Wisconsin's hospital workforce experienced unprecedented vacancy rates last year. That's according to the Wisconsin Hospital Association, as reported by the Capital Times. The report primarily attributes the trend to an aging workforce and a wave of resignations and retirements influenced by the COVID-19 pandemic. COVID-19 worsened existing trends in the healthcare workforce, especially the changing and increasing demands for care among an aging population. While hospital workforce vacancy rates were relatively stable in 2020, vacancies widened rapidly in 2021. For the first time since 2005, registered nurse vacancy rates hit double digits at about 11%. The highest vacancy rates were in frontline positions, RNs, CNAs, surgical techs, respiratory therapists, and LPNs. The Department of Natural Resources today announced it is extending the public comment period to receive feedback on a proposed relocation of Enbridge's Line 5 pipeline. The comment period is extended for another month (coughs) until April 15th. The DNR says it is currently reviewing the more than 10,000 written comments it has received about the project. And one last note before moving on. Earlier this week, we brought you a story from the Wisconsin News Connection, which reported that Enbridge's plan to relocate a portion of Line 5 in northern Wisconsin could involve a process using toxic drilling fluids. The drilling fluid is not toxic, according to Enbridge, but is still considered a pollutant by environmental advocates and regulators. A new union contract has been ratified by the union representing employees at the Willie Street Co-op, that's the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers, Local 1186. The contract will increase the lowest wage at the co-op to $15 per hour, and all wages will increase by $3.10 over the two-year contract. The workers overwhelmingly voted for a union in September of 2019 in what was one of the largest successful union elections in the nation that year. Over 300 non-managerial employees are represented by the union. In addition to the wage increases, the contract also reduces the probationary period for new employees from 90 days to 60 and provides improvements in sick leave benefits and job rights. Concerts on the Square music series will return to normalcy this summer. The summer series has tried alternatives during the pandemic. Uh, In 2020, musicians played at Breeze Stevens Field to a remote audience at Warner Park. Last year, the event was ticketed and held at Breeze Stevens Field altogether, reports the Capital Times. Now, the event is back to the Capitol Square and will again be free to attend. The summer series kicks off at the end of June. 
And those are the headlines. Now on to the rest of today's top stories. Last month, the Wisconsin Supreme Court handed down a decision that prevents municipalities from using absentee ballot drop boxes. The same ruling also restricted who can return completed absentee ballots. Our reporter Layla Ma has the story. Drop boxes cannot be used to return absentee ballots in the upcoming spring election. That means voters voting absentee have fewer options for voting on April 5th. Here's what is allowed under the new rules if you are voting absentee. First, you can mail your completed absentee ballots back to your clerk's office. However, it is recommended you vote as early as possible to avoid the ballots being considered invalid. Second, you can hand deliver your ballots back to your clerk's office. The Madison Clerk's Office downtown is open weekdays from 8 a.m. to 4:30 p.m. If you are voting absentee, you can also hand deliver your ballots to multiple early voting locations around the city, such as Warner Park Community Recreation Center and Alicia Ashman Library. Each individual location sets their own hours of when you can drop your ballots. Early voting begins next Tuesday, and the final option: you can return your absentee ballot to your polling place on election day on April 5th. Just make sure you return it by 8 p.m. when the polls close. Scott McDonnell is the Dane County clerk. He says even though voters are used to be absentee drop boxes. They will need to learn the new ways to cast their votes. I think the big difference is that voters have gotten used to the drop box. They know that they're, you know, right now the mail goes to Milwaukee and then comes back to Madison. There's just an uncertainty of what would happen. So it's unfortunate that the the court ruled that way.、Um, I'm hoping it's just temporary though, because it's pending in the Supreme Court. But for now, those lock boxes will be locked, and people should just use the mail. However, it is recommended you vote as early as possible to avoid the ballots being considered invalid. Only you can return your ballot this time around. That means family members or friends can't return your ballots for you. You can request an absentee ballot online at myvote.wi.gov. As the April fifth spring election is less than three weeks away, voters are encouraged to request an absentee ballot as soon as possible. Reporting for WORT News, M. Lilama. We continue our election coverage tonight by looking at two candidates vying for a seat on the Dane County Board. In District Twenty Four, incumbent Sarah Smith takes on political newcomer Clint. Kiveni in the area around Monona, and in a rare move, both candidates have been endorsed by the Democratic Party of Dane County. WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt has the breakdown of the candidates. Dane County Board District 24 represents most of Monona and parts of East Madison. There are two people running for the supervisory seat for the district. Incumbent Sarah Smith and Clint Kiveni. Kiveni, another political newcomer, grew up in Monona and has a degree in political science from Boston College. After returning to Monona in 2020, he led the No Bad Cops in Monona campaign. After the Monona Police Department sought to hire an officer with a history of excessive use of force complaints, that officer eventually had the job offer rescinded. Kiveni says that he first got interested in politics after experiencing the healthcare system for himself firsthand. 
I didn't really become politically aware until late in high school, early in college, when I was actually living with chronic pain that I was unable to afford to treat. And that led to me learning quite a bit about the different systems in our society that aren't serving folks well. After college, I wanted to get involved with healthcare policy, moved to Washington, D.C., and did some work there in that field. And then at the beginning of COVID, I moved back home here to Monona, wanted to get involved at the local level where I thought I could have the most impact. Keevney has been endorsed by the Dane County Deputy Sheriff's Association and the Wisconsin State Journal. Smith was first elected to the Board of Supervisors in 2020 and serves on the Sustainability Committee in the city of Monona. She first moved to Madison in 2010 to attend school at UW-Madison, where she got a degree in history and a master's in educational policy. She says she is running for re-election because she says there are issues that still need to be addressed. I'm running for re-election because my work is not finished yet. When I first ran, uh, stepped up to run really in 2019, I spoke with folks at the doors about clean water, about housing access, and a lot of those issues have continued and in some cases exacerbated by the pandemic in the last two years, gotten worse. Smith also has a list of endorsements to her name, including Representatives Sheila Stubbs and Melissa Agard, Dane County Board Chair Annalise Eicher, and Monona Mayor Mary O'Connor. The Democratic Party of Dane County has endorsed both candidates. So far, the District 24 race is the only race where the organization has endorsed more than one candidate. Keevney says that within District 24, he is concerned that the bar for hiring police officers is too low, citing the No Bad Cops in Monona campaign, as well as another incident where police handcuffed and drew their guns on a man staying in the home of a friend. He says the police in Dane County need more accountability and that a stricter hiring process is needed. Keevney says another one of his biggest concerns is the water quality in Madison Lakes. He says that the lakes are one of Madison's biggest resources and that it is tragic that the people can no longer swim in the lakes. Smith is also concerned about the water quality in Madison. That's a huge issue that comes up quite a bit. I mean, this is a lakeside district, so of course the city of Monona is half the district, but then the other half of the district is in the Madison side. So that's definitely something I hear about quite a bit. I mean, just this weekend when I was knocking on doors, I spoke to a a fisherman who was asking me, you know, about his concerns with being able to continue to eat the fish and feed the fish to his family that he catches in Lake Monona. Um, PFAS contamination in Starkweather Creek and now in Lake Monona has made it very risky and potentially unsafe for people to eat you know, more than one fish a month for certain species of fish that are caught in Lake Monona. And that's really not what our lakes, you know, people shouldn't have to be concerned about the safety and the health of the fish in our lakes, of swimming in the lakes. Keevney says that his number one priority in Dane County is housing. He says he thinks that Dane County could see even more people move into the area in the coming decades due to our proximity to clean, fresh water. Yeah, countywide, I think the most important thing is to Uh, increase the housing supply and make sure that Dane County remains affordable for working families. Within the last 10 years, 75,000 people have moved to the county and county projections expect that another 200,000 will be moving here in the next 20 years. And frankly, I think that's likely an underestimate as the impacts of climate change uh, are concentrated on the West Coast with wildfires, with severe drought. People are going to be moving to the Great Lakes region in droves over the next several decades. And if we're not extremely proactive about building more housing and building a diversity of housing, making sure people have opportunities to have ownership in where they live, we're going to see an even more extreme increase in inequality 
And that's something that we need to start actively addressing right now. Smith says that she is also concerned about housing in Dane County. She says that it's not just a city of Madison issue and that it affects all areas of the county. Smith sits on the City County Homeless Issues Committee and says that more housing needs to be created so that unhoused folks can have the resources they need to find housing. If you're looking at the two candidates and say that they share a lot in common, well, you'd be right, and they'd even agree with you. Keevney says that what sets him apart from Smith is a new perspective on how to address the challenges that face Dane County. I bring new ideas to the table, both with public safety as well as combating toxic algae blooms, as well as um, the housing issue. I have no issues uh, with Sarah's voting record. We have very similar values, um, but she is more going along with the status quo. And the, the Dane County status quo is not bad. Uh, the Dane County Board does a good job, but I do believe we need a fresh perspective on some of these really pressing matters, and that's what I bring to the table. Meanwhile, Smith says that her experience and track record in the seat, along with the endorsements she received, sets her apart. I have a proven record of success, and I have consistent values that the people of District 24 can count on. That's why I've earned the support of local leaders like Monona Mayor Mary O'Connor, Representative Jimmy Anderson, Senator Melissa Agard, and as I announced earlier today, Every Democratic woman representing Dane County in our state legislature has endorsed me in this race. So I have earned that kind of support because they know they can trust me, they can count on me, and they've seen me achieve things that they support at the county level. The spring election takes place on April 5th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. And the studio clock has just gone 6.20, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Wisconsin has the largest backlog of pending therapist and social worker licenses in the country, with some having to wait months before they are fully able to perform their jobs. This is due in part to lack of staff at the State Department of Safety and Professional Services, which processes the licenses. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt spoke with Mark Herstand. He's the head of the Wisconsin chapter of the National Association of Social Workers, their conversation took place just after a hearing at the Capitol about the backlog. I'm on the line with Mark Herstand, the executive director of the National Association of Social Workers, the Wisconsin chapter. Mark, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Happy to speak to you today. So I know you've had a long day, but just to start things off, what is happening with therapists here in Wisconsin? What is the issue and why is this happening? So um, Wisconsin has the worst backlog in applications I've ever seen in my 29 years with the National Association of Social Workers Wisconsin uh, chapter. It affects all professions, but the healthcare professions of which social workers, one of them, are impacted uh, the worst. Um, I'm getting uh, two or three contacts per week of uh, social workers. Um, some are clinical, some are not. Um, 
who are having difficulties uh, getting um, licensed. Um, some are, uh, most are in state, but some are from out of state. In the past, I would have a couple a year. Um, and so uh, people are waiting for months and months and months. Uh, they can't take jobs. They lose jobs they're offered. They're not able to apply for positions they want. They're, those that are hired uh, are, uh, because they're expected to get licensed are have to do a lower level of work at their agency because they're not officially licensed. And then other people at the agency, they either have to put people on a waiting list, if, if these are clinical social workers, because they don't have people that can do the therapy, um, or other people have to take a larger burden. Uh, there's people that want to move to Wisconsin that can't because of the delays um, uh, in the licensing process. And so this backlog of licenses for social workers and therapists, why is this such an issue? Why? What is the need for social workers and therapists in Wisconsin right now? Oh, well... Um, the COVID-19 has exacerbated or already big crisis in, um, in mental health. Um, and the, um, there's lots of information both in Wisconsin and nationwide about symptoms of depression and anxiety and mental illness have just skyrocketed, uh, particularly during uh, COVID-19. Uh, the Office of Children's Mental Health here in Wisconsin I reported that one-third of young adults experience anxiety in most days. It showed an increase in teen girls treated in emergency departments for suicide attempts over what happened before the pandemic. So there's, uh, and the Surgeon General of the United States has been so concerned about this that he actually issued a public health advisory on the mental health challenges of confronting youth. And this was exacerbated by the pandemic, whether you talk to school social workers or people working with the elderly, uh, particularly, uh, uh, or any other, uh, or just cl clinical social workers who are, you know, serving people, uh, there's been a big increase in demand uh, and people are, you know, uh, since the pandemic and, um, it's very challenging to serve them. And, and this problem of the backlog, um, is really coming at a bad time because then clinics can't keep up uh, with the demand for services. And, you know, some of these folks are, are suicidal, they have severe anxiety, um, a severe depression, um, and they really need um, assistance, you know, from, uh, you know, in this case, a clinical social worker to do, um, you know, supportive uh, psychotherapy with them. And this backlog that we have, how did this backlog happen? What led to this? Why why is this happening? Yeah, so the biggest reason is the um, chronic understaffing of the Department of Safety and Professional Services. The department brings in plenty of money through um, user fees, through uh, fees paid by um, certified and licensed social workers, of which I'm one. So we pay our fees to them with the expectation that they're going to have the money they need to run the department, to process applications, to just, you know, protect the public. And the reality is, first, the state takes 10% of the money from every department right from the start, um, which doesn't really make sense with this department because it's none of the, it's not general purpose revenue. It all comes from recipient holders. But beyond that, um, the, there's a quirk in the law that says that 
the department needs to get position authority to hire people even when they do have the money. And they have the money right now. But so in the last session, um, the governor asked that they get position authority to hire 10 new staff to deal with the backlog. And the Joint Finance Committee only gave them three, which makes no sense because it's not any more money from the public. You know, it's money that's already in the department that certificate holders have given. So the biggest issue is that, um, you know, applications have more than doubled in the last five years. In fact, the department says it's gone up 115%, and by the end of this year, it'll be 150% that um, the applications, you know, have just um, uh, skyrocketed. And we were understaffed to begin with. Um, the other thing that we worked on, and I also brought, I said that the, the legislature dropped the ball on two accounts. The most important one is they didn't allow the, the department to hire the staff they needed. Um, the second thing is that there was a proposal for a provisional license uh, that would allow people to go to work immediately while they're waiting for the license to be processed. And the, the, the same um, assembly committee that I spoke to today, um, they refused to hold a hearing on it, so it killed it. It passed the Senate, but they wouldn't hold a hearing on it. And so on two accounts, the um, state legislature dropped the ball on this issue. And, um, you know, we're going to have to go to the next legislative session to deal with the staffing. And you mentioned that hearing earlier today in the State Assembly Committee on Regulatory Licensing Reform. And I want to talk about what did you guys talk about there today? I know it was sort of a long hearing there. So what did you guys talk about? What can be done to address this issue? Yeah, so um, I, you know, gave my experience. I've been with NSW 29 years, and I talked about my experience. I also discussed the increase in, in um, mental health needs that uh, the pandemic has brought on. And I talked about my experience with the department and how they've always been understaffed, but that this is the worst that I've ever seen. And I talked about the you know, issues of uh, position authority um, and I did also say, which all the other professions said, that we give DSPS credit now in this administration because they have reached out to myself and the other professions in a way that never happened before in any profession to find out how they can improve operations. So we gave credit to DSPS for trying to do the best they can in a woefully understaffed um, you know, department. And you know, I called upon the legislature you know, the Joint Finance Committee, which is not that committee, but uh, hopefully this will get publicized, that they need to provide DSPS with the staff that they need to to address the number of applications that they're receiving, you know, all the time. So that's kind of what I, I said. And that was also the message of the psychologist and several of the, and the other professions that spoke that the problem is staffing. It's not incompetence on DSPS. Uh, or anything like that. It's a problem that they don't have the staffing that they, that they need and they haven't been granted the authority to get the staffing that they need. I've been talking with Mark Hurstan, the executive director of the National Association of Social Workers in the Wisconsin chapter. We've been discussing the backlog of licenses for therapy and social workers here in Wisconsin and what is being done to address it. Mark, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Thank you for having me on your program. I appreciate it. 
You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. A new report suggests that providing extra income correlates with smarter babies. Madison in the 60s looks at how urban renewal can become a political issue and the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves. So stay tuned for all that, but first we'll take a quick break and check back in with the BBC for what's been happening in the world for the past half hour. Stay with us. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. One in seven of Wisconsin's children live in poverty. That's 14% of the state's children. Black children are five times more likely to live in poverty than white children. We have a black child poverty rate of 42%. Poverty is not just an urban phenomenon. Several northern counties have some of the state's highest poverty rates. And how might growing up in poverty impact the developing brains of babies? A new study aims to find out, and WORT's Helena White spoke to one of the study authors. I work in a high school full of passionate, energetic, and creative students. These students are also largely students of color and low income. And I work with many who struggle with learning and the understanding and use of language. So when I saw an article about the impact on babies' brains when their low-income mothers were given money, I had to learn more. Sonia Tola Renfrey is a postdoctoral research associate at Teachers College, Columbia University, and is involved in this study called Baby's First Years, which explores whether providing financial assistance to the mothers of young children has an impact on their brain development. Tola Renfrey began by explaining that previous studies have found differences between the brains of children born into different income levels. These have been correlational studies, which have their drawbacks. The issue with studies like that is that, of course, you can say poverty or lower incomes associated with differences in the brain, but you could also argue that that, that this might not be causal. So it could be that kids who are born into poverty just already have different brains, or it could be something about the families that are living in poverty. It might be something about their genetics or their ability to pull themselves up by their bootstraps or something like that. Um, that's sort of one of the problems with correlational research is you can't say 100% that poverty itself is causing differences in the brain. In order to eliminate these problems, Baby's first years took over 400 low-income mothers and randomly assigned them to either a group who got $20 a month or a group who got $333 a month, a 20% increase in their monthly income. The two groups were racially diverse, with a majority Black or Latinx, and from four different U.S. cities. Now, with poverty, of course, you can't assign kids to live in poverty and not live in poverty. That's, that's not how it works. But what you can do is you can try to reduce poverty using a randomized control trial. And because the poverty reduction intervention was randomly 
assigned, we have a randomized controlled trial. So now we can hopefully see that the only thing that's different between for the moms who are getting more money and less money is just that size of that cash gift. And then we can look at that and whether that predicts how brain activity looks. After a year of low or high cash payments, the researchers measured the baby's brain activity with electroencephalography, or EEG devices. Previous studies have suggested that young children from lower-income families have more low-frequency electrical energy, or power, and less mid-to-high-frequency electrical energy, or power, compared with children from higher-income homes. And the results were... Now, when we actually did the statistical test for this, we didn't see any differences in the lower frequency power band. So that wasn't in line with our hypotheses. In the middle, the high frequency bands, we saw some statistically significant evidence that there was more middle to high frequency power in the high cash gift group. So they're conventionally statistically significant, and they, but we also did something that we call a correction for multiple comparisons. This is a way of scientists sort of correcting for making multiple investigations or multiple guesses. So in our statistics, the conventional test is significant. Once you correct for multiple comparisons in the way we pre-registered, some of those um, findings do not maintain their statistical significance or they fall in the margins. So that is something that we know. So we want to use a little bit of caution, but also we talked a little bit about there are some regions of the brain where we expected to see these findings more robustly than others. And so when we look in the areas of the brain where we expected perhaps to see more high frequency powers, those areas that are associated with later cognition and language, we did see that there was more middle to high frequency power in some of those regions, particularly the frontal and the central regions. And those tests did still survive correction for multiple comparisons. So can you say that giving mothers a significant chunk of money will result in babies more ready for language development and learning? And that we just don't know. And I, we don't know that this change in brain function 100% is an improvement. In fact, all of the kids in this study are healthy kids who were born to parents in the well baby nursery in the hospital. And we aren't trying to say that we made better kids or we cured the brain or something like that. All of that language really pathologizes the experience of poverty. What we do know about brains is that healthy brains adapt to the environment they're in. So brains that have one set of environmental characteristics may look one way and brains that are in a different environment may look another way. And so what we think might be happening or what our you know, hypothesis is, is that by providing this extra money to these moms who are in the high cash gift group, we may be changing things about the environment that then is leading to changes in the brain. That was Sonia Tola Renfrey talking about a study called Baby's First Years. The study will take another look at the two groups of children this summer, when they are four years old, to see what their brains look like after multiple years of either a lot or a little extra money. Other researchers are in the process of finding out how the women spent the money. So stay tuned to learn more about the impact of poverty reduction on the brains of our most precious resource, our children. For WORT Local News, this is Helena White. Standing there by the window, 
It's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, leave it to strong, low-level winds to boost temperatures. They help to stir the atmosphere and mix the warmer air that's typically up at about two or three or 4,000 feet above us down to ground level. And that was a process that was certainly going on today. We had 66 degrees when all was said and done. That was a full 12 degrees warmer than our previous warmest temperature so far this year. But it was a far cry from a record, in case you're wondering. That's partly because we're smack dab in the middle of the 10-day heat wave that occurred back in 2012. That basically reset all of the records from previous years several degrees higher than they had been, mostly up towards 80 or better. Today's date actually had one of the smaller jumps back in 2012, just 4 degrees from 75 up to 79 for the record high temperature. Other records back in that time, they'll up 8 or 11 or even 13 degrees. In any event, though, today we were fully 13 degrees short of a record, despite how warm it obviously felt. Well, no 10-day heat wave this year, I'm sorry to say. One day's going to have to do it. We'll shed another, oh, 10 degrees or more off our temperatures tomorrow after an early morning cold frontal passage. And we'll be a good 15, maybe 20 degrees colder than that on Friday as that colder air deepens. And that will partly be owing also to the fact that our late week storm, the one which I refuse to speculate about back on the Monday morning forecast, that's continued to edge southward on the modeling guidance, as we suspected it might. The European computer model, which had been hundreds of miles to the south of the global forecast systems model with its surface low pressure circulation back on Monday, that model has begun to inch uh, continually northward over the course of the last couple of days, and the GFS, for its part, has edged further south, so a storm track roughly from southwest to northeast across somewhere in central Illinois is now looking to be the likeliest prospect, though we uh, could see that swing yet several dozen miles either north or south, given the remaining model variance between the several models. And I'll point out that the North American model, now the most southward of all the solutions, has the track way down across the southern tip of Illinois. If you have a look at the water vapor image of North America that we have linked up on the WORT weather webpage this evening, you'll see the First, the big upper ridge, which warmed us today, sliding eastward at speed from the west coast back at the beginning of the loop a couple days ago to a position pretty much east of us now with tomorrow's cooler air mass starting to approach behind it over Montana and the Dakotas and northern Minnesota. And down to the southwest, diving into the pit of an upper trough that's down over southern California and Arizona, is the upper impulse that will spin up Friday's storm. That surface circulation initially over the Texas Panhandle and adjacent parts of Oklahoma tomorrow will lift northeastward to about St. Louis or so Friday morning and then to about east central or northeast Indiana Friday night. That's the general program for it. The global forecast systems model is slightly faster than the European at this point and is still a little bit further to the north. 
Both models draw a fairly good swath of moisture northward and northwestward around that circulation into southern Wisconsin starting late tomorrow or in the overnight period. Uh, but just how that uh, precipitation that's going to form from that plays out in terms of, well, precipitation type and also amount is going to depend on exactly how deep the cold air behind tonight's cold front finally uh, deepens over us uh, by that time and uh, what the resulting temperature profile in the air column is going to look like. It appears we'll have roughly five or 6,000 feet of cold air directly overhead here by then, being driven in on northeasterly winds. With winds above that veering quickly to the southwest, bringing in moisture, so that effective frontal surface should provide a decent lifting mechanism for uh, moisture being brought in both at that level and being wrapped in from the east down at the lower levels. Temperatures look uh, marginal for snow with mid-30s at uh, ground level going into Friday. But uh, the temperatures will drop to freezing shortly aloft, so I'm expecting a mixed precipitation type for the most part on Friday, with the snow production perhaps increasing in any stronger bouts of precipitation that pass through. Uh, but just a few degrees make a lot of difference in situations like this, so snow could remain primarily to the northern part of the listening area as the uh, warmer European solution is leaning, or perhaps... Uh, work clear down to the Illinois border if the colder North American solution prevails. In any case, precipitation should be ending in the overnight hours going into Saturday with a brief incursion of colder air that day. But the Sunday through Tuesday period looks uh, to be dominated by increasing southerly winds again and moisture return at least as we get on towards later Monday or Tuesday. And at that point, another round of thunderstorms is possible. I think we'll be back up towards 60 degrees again by that time. But back to this evening, uh, whatever remaining cumulus is out there should be subsiding over the next hour or so, and high clouds will begin to encroach more from the west as we go towards tomorrow morning. Temperatures will drop through the 50s and into the low 40s on southwesterly winds at 8 to 12 miles per hour, coming down fairly quickly in the next few hours and veering northwest around oh, probably 1 or 2 a.m. as the cold front comes through. Winds will stay northwesterly at about 4 to 8 miles per hour thereafter. Tomorrow we'll see continued passing high clouds, but with sufficient sun, I think we can crack 50 degrees again, despite northwesterly winds up at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Clouds will thicken downward later in the afternoon, and especially in the evening and overnight, and sprinkly rains may start to pass at turns as we get on past midnight or so. Temperatures will drop to the lower mid-30s by dawn on Friday on veering northeasterly winds at 8 to 12 miles per hour. And again, Friday's kind of a tough call. I'm guessing rain will be mixing with snow, at least light snow, in the early morning, perhaps with a few bouts of heavier snow then off and on through the day. And it's possible we may cool enough for all snow uh, at certain times during the day. So some accumulations are possible, though I suspect there to be a good bit of uh, melting. Temperatures will hold in the mid-30s on northeasterly winds, which will come up fairly briskly to 10 to 17 miles per hour, perhaps a bit gusty. Precipitation will continue into the overnight period with uh, nocturnal cooling perhaps giving us the uh, longest bout of actual snow accumulation at that time. I'm not expecting a whole lot, but maybe an inch or two by Saturday morning. And then Saturday should see decreasing clouds as the storm moves northeast of us with winds backing more north and northwest and coming down to 5 to 10 miles per hour. Temperatures will crack 40 as the sun comes out, so we may see a good bit of melting on Saturday. We'll drop towards uh, 30, perhaps even the upper 20s overnight with lighter winds before west-southwesterly winds then 
increase on Sunday and take us back, I think, into the mid-50s, possibly the upper 50s that day. Uh, incidentally, the vernal equinox will occur at 10.33 a.m. on Sunday morning, so uh, toast the incoming spring with a cup of coffee. That might help it along. Uh, at the moment, uh, just now down here at the station, it's 58 degrees. The dew point temperature is 42. Uh, just a few passing cirrus and an otherwise clear sky. Uh, winds are out of the southwest at 8 miles per hour, still gusting up above 15 from time to time. Uh, the barometer is at 29.76 inches of mercury and falling. It's now 6.48 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to March 1963, when urban renewal became a campaign issue. City schools went west, and a teenaged Ben Sidron brought jazz to the Rathskeller. Stu Levitan takes us traveling through time to 59 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, March 1963 When Madison Redevelopment Authority Chair Albert McGinnis decided to run against Mayor Henry Reynolds, he should have expected that urban renewal would become an issue in the campaign. As an appointee of the previous liberal mayor, Ivan Nestigan, and chair of the MRA since its founding in 1958, how could it not? A week after McGinnis beats Reynolds by 731 votes in the March 5th primary, it does, as the mayor attacks the MRA over its handling of the Triangle Project, particularly the 1959 report that stated there was adequate and affordable replacement housing. The report was so fantastically inaccurate that anyone who had done a fair job of research would know immediately that it did not reflect the Madison situation, Reynolds says. Although the data about housing availability and the schedule of demolition came from city staff, Reynolds holds McGinnis personally responsible. A great deal of needless human suffering arose out of the hasty and ill-planned removal of people from the Triangle Renewal Project and reflects the bungling of my opponent, Reynolds asserts. Due to the speed with which the authority went ahead, the problem grew worse, he adds. 
Council conservatives supporting Reynolds chime in, claiming McGinnis juggled MRA finances improperly. Not true. And supported regulatory practices as MRA chair that he opposed in his own private land developments. True. State Representative Norman Anderson, another charter citizen member appointed by Nestigan, responds at the MRA meeting two days later. I resent any implication that we have bungled the renewal program or caused a great deal of human suffering, he says, adding that Reynolds attacked McGinnis, quote, for purely political reasons. Alder Harold Rohr, who was vital to Reynolds' 1961 election, but is now backing McGinnis, blasts the mayor's comments as, quote, uncalled for and irresponsible. If he's got something to say, he should come here and say it. The MRA considers Rohr's proposal to invite Reynolds to a meeting, but concludes, quote, that nothing would be served in having the mayor appear before the authority and read the statement that he had already released to the press. And no good news for the MRA and McGinnis from the Madison Housing Authority, which refuses to participate in the MRA's pilot program leasing properties to then sublease to displace Triangle residents at discounted rents. And the Housing Authority tells the Redevelopment Authority it's not even interested in undertaking a study for a low-income housing demonstration program. The month brings big news for city schools. In the first major school redistricting in more than 20 years, the board in early March votes to close the 47-year-old Abraham Lincoln Elementary School, 720 East Gorham Street, after this school year. The school has only about half its capacity of 425 pupils. Closing it will save about $38,000 in annual operating costs and about $15,000 in teacher salaries. The board agrees to turn the entire parcel, including 330 feet of Lake Mendota frontage, over to the city. Mayor Reynolds says it has, quote, good possibilities as a permanent home for Madison's cultural groups and the Parks Commission directs Parks Superintendent James G. Marshall to develop a plan for that purpose. The Madison Art Association quickly expresses a strong interest in the property. Two days after voting to shutter that Central City School, the board endorses the purchase of an 80-acre site on the northeast corner of Mineral Point and Gammon Roads for a new Far West Side High School. It will be needed by the fall of 1966, when West High School is projected to be at capacity. The board plans to spend $9.3 million on construction from 1966 through the end of the decade, and a bipartisan celebration for the trade schools. On the 12th, Democratic Governor John Reynolds and Republican Mayor Henry Reynolds, no relation, headline the dinner banquet celebrating the 50th anniversary of Madison Vocational, Technical, and Adult Education Schools. Other Jubilee events include a student dance, a food show, and talks. Cityside, the council unanimously approves 6th Ward Alder George Elder's proposal to adopt and strengthen the state's open meetings law as city policy. From now on, all regular and special city meetings will have to be held in publicly accessible places with proper notice and be open, except for personnel items and a few other specified matters. And on the 16th, the Police and Fire Commission names Ralph A. McGraw, 48, Chief of the Madison Fire Department. 
The 23-year veteran of the department takes over when Chief Edward J. Page retires on July 1st. And on campus, the first week of March is a heady time for 19-year-old pianist Ben Sidron. On the 1st, the Racine native is a featured performer at the Military Ball, tickling the ivories in in Wisconsin, outfitted for the night as the Playboy Lounge. On the 8th, the Ben Sidron Quintet inaugurates live Friday afternoon jazz in a packed Rathskeller. On the 4th, the UW faculty reject a resolution that would ban university sports teams from playing schools with states that, quote, impede or attempt to impede civil rights enforcement. The existing policy, prohibiting competition against teams from institutions that practice discrimination, remains in place. On the 7th, with more than 10,000 American soldiers in Vietnam, designated by the U.S. government as military advisors and not combat troops, the group Students for Peace and Disarmament sponsors a public forum entitled Vietnam, Our Undeclared War. About 100 American soldiers have died in country so far. And two legends of words and music perform at the Memorial Union Theater with differing degrees of success. On the 10th, Pulitzer Prize winner W.H. Auden gives a lackadaisical, almost lazy poetry reading for a near-capacity crowd. On the 26th and 27th, guitar master Andre Segovia awes audiences at two sold-out shows with his survey of guitar styles over the centuries, everything but early lute music. Segovia first performed on campus in 1933 in the Great Hall, only two years after his New York debut. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. And thanks especially to all of those of you who were able to pledge during our winter pledge drive the last couple of weeks. We certainly appreciate it. Your funds enable our ability to keep this news program free of commercial influence. We do thank you. There's still a donate button, an orange donate button on our website. So avail yourself of that if you weren't able to pledge. Your headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Reporting was Layla Ma. Special thanks to our feature contributors, Helena White and Stu Levitan. Chuck Hademan is our engineer this evening, and Nate Ruggie helped produce the newscast. Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT, and I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Again, thank you all for your support during the Pledge Drive. Thank you, everybody, and have a good night. Mm-hmm.